1: It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARC. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARC Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: Welcome, everyone, to ARK's For Your Innovation podcast. Today, we've got an incredible guest we've got Dirk Hoke who's the CEO of Volocopter. Welcome Dirk. Thanks for having me. Hi Sam. Hi Tasha. So how did you come to join Volocopter? I guess we we start there. You you didn't found Volocopter, but you're you're leading it into hopefully commercialization pretty soon. So how did you find
3: Volocopter? That's quite a long story. I, I try to cut it short. Um I, I knew Volocopter since 2015-16. Florian Reuter, who was the former CEO of uh, Volocopter, reached out to me uh, because he knew me from Siemens times and uh, we met regularly on different conferences and regularly he catched up and I was following the UM side already as CEO of Airbus Defence and Space intensively, also being involved in many working groups at the Baltic Forum and others. Following up with the institutional side, the um, authorities, FAA, EASA, yeah, to understand better what needs to be done in order to make urban mobility really a reality, learning a lot about the the challenges. And uh, yeah, so following from the other side. And then when I left Airbus, um, Florian reached out to me, uh, first uh, more towards uh, an advisor board seat. And then um, somehow when he, when I was in discussion for other jobs, he said, why are you not becoming my successor? So I, this was, of course, because I didn't expect him to step down. Firstly, secondly, I was not prepared for that question. So I said, uh, he said, please don't turn it down immediately. Give me some, and I said, then give me some time to to do my homework and, and, and give you a proper answer. So I did because I knew the, the ecosystem and the industry pretty well. And for me, it was more decision. Do I want to now continue to work in a big company, because I had a lot of offers. I had even had a contract on my desk. Um, so, or should I try something new? Um, and I was always, um, yeah, I liked the idea about uh, a, a new modality coming into the market and to be part of that. And. Uh, I said, if I don't do a startup now, then I will never do it. Um, so, yeah. Also, after consulting with my family, everyone was supportive. Um, my da- my daughter said, uh, "Dad, uh, you have done big companies, you have made good money. Uh, why don't you do something real cool?" So, you can always count on kids to give you the truth. Yeah, it's it's, it, it's very seldom that you get from your 19-year-old daughter or 18-year-old daughter that at that time. That this is really cool. Uh, so it it yeah, it played a role. My fe- whole family was supportive, and um, all the discussion with the with the board of advisors, with the team, the management team, was very positive. So so then I said, uh, I will do it. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy to to be now part of that team. It's it's very visionary, very motivated, highly engaged team. Yeah, uh, trying to do the impossible because we really want to fly next to you in Paris. And so Dirk, I think you might be the perfect person to help
2: uh everyone understand, you know, aviation is full of acronyms. Even even just now we're talking FAA and EASA, EBTOL. So can can you kind of just break down the landscape, you know, electric vertical, take off and landing? Why now? What is, what is the FAA? What is EASA? Why, why is it so important to understand what those two are? Yeah,
3: you have two um, authorization bodies that certify vehicles for civil aviation, and that's EASA in Europe and FAA in the U.S. Um, they have also an agreement um, to accept um, the, the standards. And uh, so normally if you certify by one of these big bodies, It's very simple to certify then also for the other part and then also get local national authorization to fly in the national aerospace of other countries. So what we will do is we will certify with EASA in Europe. We'll then, of course, apply for certification by FAA in the US. Uh, With that, we have, let's say, a very broad access to the global markets and national application processes are then rather fast. So, like you probably have read, yesterday we published that we will have an alignment between JCAP, the Japanese authorization body, and the other to make also a very smooth um, certification process, so that we can fly in 2025 in Osaka in Japan. So these authorization bodies, ensuring that uh, we have a safe transportation in the civil airspace. And uh, as you know, um, so far aircraft are still the safest uh, transportation modality in the world, um, even in a more than 100 years history. This was done because they applied very harsh safety requirements. One of the requirements that uh, is important in the civil airspace is that you can have only a mistake, a serious mistake, Uh, or problem after 1 billion operational hours. So this is what we call the safety rule of 10 to minus 9. So only one mistake every 1 billion operational hours. That's quite impressive and um, this is of course a big barrier to entry. Um, In order to get certified you need also to pass a couple of other certificates. So it's not we cannot decide in our um, garage to build an aircraft but we we have to be authorized uh, to design and to build an aircraft so this is called design organization approval and production organization approval and we have already achieved these two very important milestones uh, so that we are allowed to design and also to build aircraft that can then be used in the civil. I suppose. And I guess on that, you know, Tasha maybe maybe this
2: ties into some of the autonomous work. One in a billion mistake per operational hours. How do you get enough data and comfort to accept that that's the true probability of a mistake when, you know, obviously you're not going to be flying this aircraft for a billion hours before it's approved.
3: So what what type of things go on to ensure that type of safety? So it's a mix of mathematical calculations, simulations and uh, flight tests. So it's three elements that come together in order to make sure that you can achieve these 1 billion hours, let's say standard. What you do is is that you uh, combine these um, elements into a simulation in order to understand wh- where are the weak points of your system, which could lead to a critical mistake and in this case where you have critical components you have to plan for redundancies so in case a certain safety relevant system fails you need to have a backup solution so with that you can then increase um, the the safety criteria and you can make sure that you uh, get a higher valuation uh, towards the one one uh, t- 10 to minus nine rule. And then it's of course uh, the combination with the checking the mathematical model and the simulation against reality. That's why you have to do perform a lot of flight tests. That's uh, what we start, for example. Again, now in in summer we will fly thousands of times in order to make sure that we comply with the envelopes defined by ASA, and uh, with that we verify our mathematical models. It's a comb- combination of thorough science work on and also mathematical cal- calculation simulation and then verifying by real fighters
0: and you know as as you said, re- regulation is such a big barrier to entry for this industry. Um, uh, of course, like we understand in the theory that this is a really rigorous process. but what 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 are the components that actually make this so difficult and and what are some of the pitfalls that you see? potentially other companies falling
3: into? The problem is that in order to be certified, you need also certified components. So it is not that you go into um, a a shop and buy some components, build an aircraft, and you get it certified. So what we do is in order to reduce the time to certification is we use already certified components from um, certified suppliers that have worked in the aerospace before. And with that, we can then uh, shorten the time for the certification pathway. Whenever we bring a new component into an aircraft, we need to recertify. So this is, of course, a very, very rigorous process. And uh, this is something which at the end leads to long lead times for uh, companies that have never worked in the aerospace. So you need to be able to understand what are the critical components, how do you certify them, or how do you use certified components, and how do you integrate that into a certifiable system? So this is a huge barrier. This is also why components for aerospace are so much more expensive than for automotive, because you have a much more complicated certification process, which is adding then on the component price. How do you say the
2: regulators have reacted? You know, typically... I think people think of regulators as extremely conservative. Now there's this huge wave of new technologies being pushed simultaneously by different parties all trying to get their attention and approve different types of flying vehicles or flying designs. What has the reaction been
3: from the global regulators? I can only say from my experience uh, since 2015 2016 but this started already earlier I think it started mostly when the first toy drones came into the market when the first multi copters so whenever you flew a, a toy helicopter which is pretty complicated and then you got the first toy drone and then especially when DJI came with the more more advanced versions into the market you, you could see and witness how easy it is to fly a drone, even with uh, very difficult weather conditions, strong winds and so on. And this was, of course, one of the, let's say, accelerators for the ideas to create this kind of system also for for cargo and for passenger transportation. This was one of the key points for our founders to look at this um, this technology and see how this toy technology can be used to accelerate uh, the access to passenger taxis also in the Evtol area. From the um, from the authorization bodies, um, certification bodies, the reaction was mixed at the beginning. Um, looking at uh, EASA at the beginning, of course, everyone was like, how do we certify these new uh, vehicles? EASA was from the beginning very open to it um and i even discussed at that time from ever's perspective with the with the bodies and uh, they always said um dirk i would love that your team is as agile as the the startup companies that uh, look at us how we can create a certification pathway so they were open for assessing how this can be certified so they were not let's say, blocking it. They were embracing it. and uh, But of course, they were looking also on how to make it a, a tangible experience and a safe experience because they don't want to put the reputation of aerospace at stake. So this has to be clear. Bringing new modality into the market is for both sides a risk because they don't want to spoil their reputation. And of course, we want to do business and uh, we need to make sure that we don't sacrifice safety on the way to it. It was a good um, communication from, from the beginning, um, good interaction that led also a few years ago to the first um, draft of the certification roadmap that is defined by EASA. And this is now leading to a very, in my opinion, robust plan how these vehicles will be certified. But. Uh, yeah but this is only the first step there's still many more steps necessary to make it uh, let's say a scalable model around the globe because uh, once we are certified this is one important step but we still need to discuss how we integrate uh, these vehicles not only in into what we call um, use space but also into the ATM. ATM is the air traffic management of the civil airspace how we Let's say, regulate the traffic all of all the twenty four thousand aircraft around the world. And this is mostly done still by humans. And in order to integrate now thousands or hundred thousand of drones, be it for cargo or passenger transportation in the future, we need to do the next step of digital transformation also for the air traffic management. And this will need some time because only then we have a system that can handle, the complexity of merging 24,000 aircraft with hundred thousand of drones into a safe, um, traffic management. Another question I had, so the physics, at least
2: from what I understand, they're the same, they apply the same way to everyone and there's different use cases, but even for let's say fixed wing aircraft, most fixed wing aircraft look similar. They might have different use cases and they might look slightly different, but they all look fairly similar when it comes to drones that's definitely not the case right now there's i'd say a huge variety in what a drone looks like what an electric vertical takeoff landing aircraft looks like volocopters it is i'd say you know unique just like everyone else's why are there so many different designs and why
3: is volocopters design the way it is yeah, I cannot talk about the designs of other companies and what was the reasons for it. Um, I think the Volocopter design was, was done in order, first of all, to make it fly. Um, but the most important criteria in the design phase was built to certify. So keep it simple, make it sure that it doesn't become fancy, just to, to be fancy, but make sure that it can be certified. So again, as I said before, use certified components or, or use certifiable components. Uh, make sure that it's simple so that um, the uh, certification bodies can understand the choice of the components and um, uh, understanding also how we calculate the, the safety standard. So here we have a clear focus on certification from day one. And this is something that, in my opinion, also differentiates Volocopter from other more fancy designs. And also then you have to look at what are the requirements for the market. Uh, Volocopter with the Volocity has chosen to fly within the city environment. So normally in a city environment, you don't need to fly 200 kilometers or 300 kilometers. You need to fly 20, 30, 40 kilometers. You have rather a short hop on hop off experience. Um, so you have total different requirements than you would have in order to fly 200 or 300 kilometers. That's why you see the the design for the water region is totally different. Here it is more about, um, the efficiency of uh, flying, um, medium distance versus the stability in an urban environment um, that we want to provide with the water city. So what is is important to get the public acceptance is you need to feel safe. So here you need to see 18 rotors and where we already demonstrated that uh, we could lose easily two and we can still safely land. Um, it's the noise level compared to a helicopter is 80% lower. So you, we could have a normal conversation like that if a vehicle is landing 50 meters beside us. That's not possible with a helicopter. So reduced noise level, more, more security and safety, and emission-free and sustainable. So these were the main requirements, what we said are necessary in order to fly within a city environment so that we can blend easily into the normal noise that you have in a city so if you look and then hopefully you can come and visit us and see demonstration flights and test flights the frequency of the noise is also in in a frequency band that is very acceptable because it blends into the normal noise level of a city so you will not really differentiate our our the noise of our vehicles compared to the street noise that you have from cars so We believe it's really acceptable and this is also the feedback that we get from the public test flights, from the audience that were, was witnessing and listening um, to the vehicle in operation. So, so this is why we designed the vehicle, 18 rotors, mostly for stability and safety. And then the whole region with the wing design it is it is designed to fly efficiently but also safe so we we have is we have lift motors and we have push motors so we separate we don't have any tilting technology because there you could have easily problems in the tilting process here we have the lifting process six uh, or more uh, lifting motors and then we have two pusher motors so we separate that vertical from the horizontal uh, movement and uh, whenever you go into the horizontal movement, you go into an aircraft mode where you use the wing. And this becomes very efficient. So it is um, an efficient way of moving medium distance. This is something that we will use um, with the VVOL region up to 200 kilometers uh, flying in one hour. But also to be honest, this will not be possible today because the batteries are not good enough yet. But uh, with the batteries that we will get in 2025, we will be able to fly these parameters.
0: I'd love to expand on that point. You know, we've talked a lot. Uh, clearly, this is—it's a—it's a very difficult thing to do. You have to pass these safety hurdles, these regulatory hurdles, but it opens up a lot of opportunity. And it seems like it's empowered by you know these techno- technologies like batteries. You know, in the case of unmanned flight, like autonomy, that are now available that you know previously were not. So seems like you know I'd love to hear from you sort of yeah what 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 was sort of the key unlock to make this possible for you all, and then what's what are you hoping to do for passengers for cargo like why is let's you know I, I want our listeners to know how exciting this is
3: we look at you see there are tons of different business cases and use cases um so first of all, maybe I'm not sure that this was clear for the for the years to come, we will still fly with a pilot. And only in the next decade, we will go into uh, automation and then into autonomy Uh, because the certification pathway it still needs to be defined. And this is pretty complicated because of course you have to overcome a lot of um, let's say biased opinions on it and, and we have to prove over a certain time that we fly uh, the eVTOL systems as, as part of the ATM, as I've, I uh, explained before. So this will take time. But in, in that uh, time frame, what we will do is we will um, start with our two seaters based on the battery um, that are available right now and then move into four seater. We will then go and add to our portfolio the, the whole region for medium distances. And uh, as you know, we have already cargo drone. What do we do with that? Um, We look at the urban air mobility, different use cases fly from the airport into the downtown city. Mostly it is wherever you have congestion, it's adding an alternative for people that need to be uh, sure about the time of arrival. It will be adding, it will not replacing any modality. What we also look at, and we have our partner ADAC, ADAC, in order to look at emergency response for example the water city would be in the first step it would bring the doctor to an accident so that we can have a first response uh, in a shorter time than today and of course in a sustainable manner and secondly when we have the water region we have a high interest of ADAC to use that also to transfer to patients to the hospital so first starting, bringing the doctor to the accident. Next step is not only bringing the doctor to the accident, but also bringing the patient towards the hospital, as it is done in many cities of the world uh, today with a helicopter. But of course, we want to do it emission-free. We want to do it uh, with a much lower noise level and uh, more flexibility. So this is um, a very important use case. But then, of course, uh, for cargo, it could be maritime, vessel to shore shorter vessel we see interest um, for uh, of course all the logistic hubs of the world we see all the use cases even in mining and other industries uh, where it is about the reliability of the vehicle and the payload um, so there are many many different use cases um, and some of them already tested as you know from other companies that uh, transport organs, um, blood, and uh, medicine. So there are a lot of use cases that that will make our life easier and better. So I'm definitely convinced that once you have reliable vehicles, we will have countless of use cases.
0: And in terms, you know, when we, we look at innovation at Arc, we often look for, you know, something that has a competitive cost dynamics to the systems that already exist. And I understand this is a very nascent industry, right? So first, you're making something possible that previously just wasn't possible. What do you think about longer term sort of, you know, who who will this be available for? Sort of what are the cost and price structure dynamics that you expect in the industry?
3: You see, at the end, uh, the business parameters are driving the, the development of the product. So if we cannot create a viable business case, it will be a very short, uh, um, let's say, Idea of bringing something new into the market. No, I strongly believe we can definitely create a viable business. Um, At the beginning, looking at passenger transportation, you see there are a lot of statements out what it should cost and a lot of studies. I think looking at what the cost of transportation is, um, I think no one expects that it will be the same price as of a taxi or Uber. But of course, expectations are high to make it accessible to everyone, which means probably like double the price of a taxi. And then if it's in a congested area where you really gain a lot of time, then it can be even higher. But uh, we also have to be realistic. At the beginning, we will start with, if you do a total cost of ownership calculation, the price of the ticket would be much higher. With an increasing capacity with more seats, it will then go down very fast. And then you once you go into uh, mass production, you have all the balance of scale effects that will easily lead to very competitive pricing. Why? Because the advantage is urban air mobility will lay somewhere between automotive and aerospace. Aerospace has very small quantities. Automotive has very high quantities. So we will be anywhere in between. So you have the balance of scale economics kicking in. Uh, because if you can do it for for aerospace at a very low quantity, you definitely can do it for urban air mobility at a much higher scale. So, so here we believe over the course of time, we will be able to bring the price per seat per kilometer, which will be an important indicator, um, down to three to four euro per seat. But not in the first two years, definitely not.
2: And then I think it's also interesting to think about what you were saying about the noise level, right? Because obviously there's the regulatory approval for the aircraft itself has to be allowed, but in a lot of our modeling, depending on the city and areas with that high congestion, you know the the landing sites and the economics there can can make or break some of these models as well. And so having something that's not you know not in my backyard getting impossible to have landing pads right in in manhattan right now i think there is three landing pads and so what are you seeing um what's it is that the same in cities in europe um and what's the regulatory discussion around increasing landing sites
3: we have to find new ways because today um the certification of a hilly port in europe or in germany takes a long time so, so here we also need to wait now till people understand better the impact of operating our vehicles, which are totally different than helicopters. So, we believe that this will lead to also an adaptation of some of the routes that are used today for heliports and helicopters, because the noise level is so much different. And with that, of course, the impact for on the on the population. I give you an example uh, when we did the flight. Uh, PES in Paris, we invited uh, for the last time a lot of journalists and uh, there was a bus with an open roof and all the journalists were on top of it. And I had an interview with one of the journalists afterwards and I asked her, so how did you experience the noise level and what do you think about the the noise at takeoff and uh, during the flight? And then she said, "Um, I have to admit that I missed the takeoff. And I said, how can you miss it? You were like 75 meters away from it. She said, because I was talking to my colleague who stands by my my side. So she had a normal conversation with a colleague on the rooftop of an open bus, 75 meters from the vehicle, and she missed the takeoff. So you get an idea about the noise level. And this is something that, that's why I say it it can only be a step-by-step approach. Believing that we can come with thousands of vehicles in the next two years into the cities, this is not going to happen because we have to demonstrate first so that people can see and believe that it is acceptable for for their daily life. And once we have done that convincing work by demonstrating that uh, it is an acceptable addition to our modalities and at the end it brings more comfort than stress, then hopefully we can scale and uh, increase the amount of vehicles amount of routes and with that then hopefully come to one day to the dream that we really have a more open network of vertiports where we have more flexibility not only a few routes in within a few cities
0: I'd also love to touch on you, you said that this you know this model is ideal for areas with high congestion one of the uh, a thesis that we have at Arc is that as autonomous mobility on the ground takes off. That, of course, yeah, longer term, when every car is autonomous, maybe traffic could be more efficient. But for the foreseeable future, it seems like, you know, traffic should increase as you have sort of that integrated travel. If you bring cost per mile down to something that's so low, it might even compete with public transportation and invite more people into the ride hail market. In your conversations uh, with cities, with regulators, do you feel like that is... um Is is that talked about at all? Or, um, you know, what's their sort of view on on congestion?
3: You see, it depends which city you talk to and what problem they have. Uh, If you have at peak time uh, an average speed below three, four miles an hour, they are very open to these discussions because they see every day the loss of productivity in their cities. And of course, they need to find modalities that they can add without waiting 20 years for a new metro system or building new highways or, you see, asking for something that is not going to be applicable in a, in a short term. Our systems can be applied to any city in a very short-term manner once we, we have demonstrated that we are safe and at a low level on the noise side, um, so we can be used in order to get at least certain relief in a very short term manner. Um, and as I said, we will not replace a metro system. It's uh, mass transportation is is of course the better choice, but you cannot have a metro system in any place of the world in the short term. So, so we can at least ge- add one modality that can improve the situation to a certain extent and can give more choices and with that more flexibility in the end-to-end transportation. But I think also what it needs to be understand, we will add only one element of the transportation of mobility. So we have to make sure that this is totally integrated into the user experience from A to B so that you see what I don't like is I don't want don't like to use four different modalities on my way to a certain destination and then I have four different booking platforms and then I have to change my plans and I have to rebook in four different platforms because it doesn't add up anymore. So we need also to ensure that we look from a holistic point of view how we optimize the end-to-end mobility concept and how we integrate our platform with other platforms so that you have a smooth user experience because at the end it's all about Getting from A to B in the most efficient and most comfortable, and of course also in the most sustainable manner. And then
2: how about on the business model side? When when the first airplane makers were making planes, they were also the operators. And then that split out over time. And right now, you know, there I think there's a number of again, everyone's kind of going at it their, their own way. What's the decision process to make and operate versus just make and then sell to someone else and do you think that that evolves over time or uh it would be the same
3: throughout you described it perfectly because um why at the beginning there were operators and and service companies they wanted to ensure the quality of the service they wanted to make sure that there is no accident so that the rotation cannot be damaged and i think what you see with our Focus City approach now, we do exactly the same. We partner. We don't want to do everything ourselves, but we will partner and do operation and service with partners in the local, let's say, environment. Companies that know the local environment and need, they understand the the, the problem of the city and how to approach it, but they also, of course, have the connection towards the uh, different authorities in order to ensure that we get all the licenses that we need in order to operate. So, yes, we want to be operator and uh, service company at the beginning, um, but definitely together with the local partners to ensure that this is a smooth user experience. Later on, to be honest, I cannot tell you yet. This depends then on the development, how fast we scale, and it is a journey, and I, I, I think we have to be open for all different kind of models. We might become an OEM. I don't see that yet because I think the difference is that we, as I just explained, we want to be part of an end-to-end mobility concept. And here, uh, this software platform also plays a role. And this is maybe also where we differentiate from other companies in the market because we build our own software platform to ensure not only that we can um, monitor the telemetric data of the the vehicle and the sensor data, but that also that we can integrate into a booking platform that we can integrate into the handling of the vehicle on the ground. All of that can be done in our existing platform today. And this is something that we want to then extend into the end mobility concept. So I rather see us that we will stay involved over quite a period of time to ensure that this user experience is as good as it can be that makes
2: a lot of sense and i think you know getting to the to the very exciting part 2024 paris olympics that's the goal for the launch before we before we get into anything else who's your dream passenger you know who, who, who do you what what athlete are you are you uh, trying to to get to the stadium
3: Yesterday, I saw an interview with uh, Steven Spielberg at the Berlinale in Berlin. And he said, uh, he was asked which movie he liked best. And he said, you know, I will not answer that question. This is the same as you would ask uh, which child I like the most. So <laughs> you can always lose, only lose with these questions. Of course, you, you saw a lot of articles probably where, where it was... Um, Promoted that we would like to have the President Macron flying into the stadium. Um, This is something which we haven't discussed, to to be honest. But of course, if I could have a wish list, this would be pretty much on the top of the list. Ensuring that we have the visibility um, of starting operation, making sure that everyone can see it's safe to fly, It's, um, it's certified um, and we are licensed to do commercial operation, this would be, of course, a big step forward um, to bring urban mobility to life. That's so right. You just have to make sure there's a lot of traffic on, on
2: that day, which I'm sure there will be, and uh, have them pull up the app. Obviously, there's a lot to get done between now and then, and it's uh, pretty near in the future, which is even more exciting. It's becoming a reality. Uh, what, what are kind of the the hurdles that remain to getting to commercial launch?
3: There are a lot. It's, it's not a walk in the park, and I, we have to admit um, the, the, the challenges are still super high. What we do is um, we we currently in the critical design review of a vehicle, which is an important step for us to get to the final design. We will start this year the flight tests according to the envelopes that are defined together with EASA. So we will do intensive flight uh, tests in order to verify our models and uh, simulations. And with that in parallel, we will um, apply as an airline operator. Uh, So we plan to have the air operator uh, certificate by mid of the new year, and we will start flying a fixed-wing aircraft in order to get operational experience, which will help us then for the preparation of the AOC, the, the certificate that we will need to operate the vehicles in Paris. So it, this these are some important steps that we will do this year. And then next year is um, to prepare with our partners the infrastructure, making sure that we have the processes in place in order to operate the aircraft on the ground, um, to do the charging, the servicing. Also, we hope that... We can announce the routes together with our partners at the Paris Air Show. This would be something we 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 are working together on to, to make that possible. And then we have uh, to make sure that we can ensure a smooth operation and we can make uh, it accessible to as many people as possible during uh, the summer 2024
0: in Paris. I'd love to switch gears a bit and talk about cargo. You know, so... The the work that we've done at Arc has, has mainly been focused on kind of this last mile of delivery. We've looked a lot at like parcel delivery and and food delivery for small packages, meals, maybe maybe groceries, depending. But there's this really long tail of markets that are, you know, all of a sudden accessible and addressable by drones. So, what are the biggest opportunities in your mind? Um, and you know, is is the lot like I'm thinking of maybe parcel is the biggest opportunity, but Is it actually that long tail of all these other other industries, you know, emergency services that sort of add up to something that becomes more exciting?
3: It's the $1 billion question. And we we have done many brainstorming sessions on it, and we're still discussing it regularly. To be honest, it depends on the type of vehicle you design. Um, You can, because you see, like our drone right now, with 200 kilo payload, with a range of 30, 40 kilometers it is, of course, already eliminating a lot of use cases because it's it's narrowing down where it is makes sense to be used. You will have, and then you can see it already today, you have thousands of different drone designs for different purposes. The good thing is it will provide probably for every niche market an own solution. And we will see that there's not a standard solution to the customer's problem. So we will see... A lot of different uh, variation in order to approach the market. so I don't think we can with one design cope with all the requirements of the different markets. What we will do is we will focus on the more sophisticated markets, which is the the higher payload because you will see there are a lot of drone providers let's say below fifty kilos or even below ten kilos it's even I, I cannot count the amount of drone providers that exist today already in the market in different countries and that run um, successful tests already all over the world globe. But for the 200 kilo plus market, it's, it's quite limited because then you need a lot of aeronautical experience. You need also to understand um, uh, the, the different steps from automation towards autonomy. Um, it's, it's becoming much more complicated when you fly beyond uh, the visual line of sight and uh, also, of course, to to get a certificate to fly over crowds. So here we believe we can differentiate because we have the experience also from the certification process for the passenger um, drones and uh, in the combination with what we do on the sensors and uh, on the automation on the software side uh, towards automation and autonomy on the cargo drone side, we have a beneficial overlap in both directions, which helps us to define the use case. As I said, one of the uh, big use cases we believe in is, is vessel to shore and shore to vessel uh, because here if you look at the thousands of um, container ship and uh, big logistic hubs and the need of transportation between the vessel and the harbor here here is definitely already quite, quite a significant use case. And then This can then um, be extended to, in our case, not the last mile concept, but rather hub to hub concepts, uh, where where we can add, uh, um, let's say, time critical and expensive freight, where you want to be sure that it's arriving at a certain point of time. Here we can add an additional option in order to to make logistics more efficient and flexible.
0: Got it. And on on the autonomy side, you know, I've I've heard other um, Other people in the drone industry will sometimes say, well, actually, for flight, autonomy is not the hard piece. You know, it's really just, as you said, sort of getting the right certification, the regulation, making sure that you can fly beyond line of sight. Is that correct in your view? What's the most difficult piece piece of that?
3: I think autonomy is not a technology problem. Again, as as for for the passenger drone, it was never a technology problem. It was a certification and public acceptance um, problem uh, and maybe a battery challenge, but not a problem. On the cargo drones, it's, 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 um, it's also, I think, because you need to be cost efficient, you need to be able to deliver a drone that is highly competitive on price but still very reliable in operation because at the end you need to operate 24 seven and easy to manage. So it means you need just to press a button and it does what it's supposed to do. You you don't want to have highly sophisticated pilots flying these drones because then you don't get into a, a, a useful business case. So making a drone that is highly competitive, has a high payload and still is, let's say, absolutely easy to use, that's the challenge. And um, I haven't seen a lot of drone concepts yet that are there yet. A lot of them are testing, but I haven't seen one being perfect yet. So we that's why we also continue to, to test. Uh, we will fly in, in Saudi Arabia at Neom uh, in May uh, doing test flights with the Volodrone version 2. We continue to work with DB Schenker um, and what we will also do is uh, you will see we will work on a new concept that will be optimized along the, the criteria that I just described. So you will see that we will have a next generation drone still being prototyped this year, which will be much more competitive on price and towards the criteria of our, our customers.
0: And when you say, you know, a lot of what you see sort of isn't quite there yet on this ease of use and sort of like fully, like, it sounds like you're saying it's a fully automated process from start to finish. You're saying that there's still, you know, hu- humans in the loop at times where there's not ideal or, or what's what's what, what exactly isn't there yet in your mind?
3: I think there will be humans in the loop uh, for quite a while. Also on the, on the cargo drones, um, just to verify. I think what would what be different is you will have more drones per person to be controlled and, and monitored, but but they will still be humans. At least in our case, uh, we believe that we will continue to use hum- humans in the loop for quite a while. I know from a lot of different models um, across the world and uh, uh, we are in contact with a company in China that um, is successfully for, for years already doing agriculture drones and also Food delivery drones. Um, so there are use cases in place where where people already did some some significant progress. But these are very small drones, which is where where a lot is done with off the shelf components, and it's a total different use case than than what we aim for.
0: So you actually have this advantage because since you've already you're already used to building these larger um, aircraft that tend to not have off the shelf components. Gotcha.
2: Great. Dirk, is there, is there anything that you think we missed that people need to know about Volocopter before we wrap up here?
3: Yeah, I think it's it's um, what I see in many of the discussions around the world that a lot of people still believe that um, air taxis will only fly in 2030s and beyond. And even if we tell them we fly next year in Paris, they look at us like we're a bit crazy. Um, so... I think it is It is important to really understand we, we're getting there. It's only 16 months from now. And uh, we also, even if there would be a problem, we don't see that we will miss 24. Uh, so it, 24 will be the first year of commercial operation of Evidolz globally. And uh, then it will be on us to prove that this is efficient, that it is uh, reliable, safe and uh, that is also fun to use. And uh, with that, we all really hope that this opens then a total new market and uh, that people will embrace it instead of rejecting it. And and uh, yeah, I, I'm very excited that we are part of that story that we will enable people to get access to it next year. We're excited too. And, you know, we're excited. It's always exciting to
2: see the, the modeling work that we've done and the analysis uh, then, you know, the people doing the real hard work like you, making it a, a reality and, and seeing that theory meet practice. And I feel like the the ev- the evolution here, right? You saw it's like electric cars are now in, in like the James Bond movies and uh, now we'll have the Olympics and then we'll just wait on the next Mission Impossible for the for the Volo Copter appearance.
3: Yeah, though we're looking forward uh, to have you on board, um, looking forward that you tell us how you like it. And um, yeah, whenever you're in Germany, please come and visit us. Um, we we will fly intensively this year, so you will have a chance to see uh, the water city or the water region flying. I think that's better than any movie or to to get a PowerPoint presentation so hopefully you can witness uh, how much fun it is to to see these vehicle flying and and um, yeah hopefully we can can welcome you on board of such a vehicle in 24 25.
0: Sign me
1: up!
3: Thanks, Can't wait.
1: Derek. Thanks. Ark believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that Ark believes to be reliable. However, Ark does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC.